Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16 as we continue looking at the stories that Jesus told uh, as we walk through the book of Matthew. And so uh, let me encourage you, if you do have a device or an actual physical Bible, uh, go ahead and open that. Uh, we're going to be looking around in the passage as we go this morning. Uh, but as we jump in here today, I want us to use our imaginations a little bit and imagine uh, we are in high school or college, okay? Now, for some of you, that was a long time ago. For some of you, you're not quite there yet. Some of you, you get it, and, and that's where you are. So just strain your brain wherever you may be, and I want you to just consider uh, the different types of students that you encounter, especially as we're talking about preparing for exams, Okay? Uh, so uh, you have your disciplined and diligent folks. We know who they are, right? Uh, they sometimes have flashcards. They have very organized binders. They go to the after-class stuff where they uh, get some of the extra training and equipping there. Uh, and, and, and so maybe you fall into that category. Or maybe you're in the other category. Maybe you're what we would call the party crowd, right? Uh, the ones who didn't take school too terribly serious. Uh, you uh, didn't prepare so much, you know, Flashcards? Why flashcards, right? That doesn't make sense. Um, and they may have uh, something that I like to call woo. Have you ever heard of that before? Strengths, finders, or whatnot. Woo stands for winning others over. So sometimes this crowd can have the woo effect, right? So they miss an assignment and they go and they're like, hey, can I just, you know, get it extended one day and just get a break? We know if you're a wooer, you know who you are. You know you got those breaks, right? All right, so we're, we're, we're maybe picking up on these categories, well, we come to final exams, all right? And everybody's preparing, as you would assume them to prepare, uh, out of those two crowds. They take the exam, and exactly what happens, or what, exactly what you think would happen, happens. Uh, the diligent and disciplined, uh, they nail it. Uh, the party crowd, they don't. Uh, but the professor or the teacher takes a while to put the grades up. Right? You're, you're disciplined and diligent. Your blood pressure's going up. Uh, the party crowd's like, phew, I got another few days of freedom, right? And so you're waiting, and then all of a sudden... The grades go up, and you look, and sure enough, disciplined and diligent, they all get A's. But guess what? Party crowd gets A's too. hey <laughs> How you feeling right now? Well, it depends on your crowd, right? Party crowd, you're like high-fiving, you're leaving, you're pumped. Diligent and disciplined, you're furious, right? Really, really upset. Well, this is an illustration that Jerry Bridges uses in his book, Transforming Grace. He's an author, campus minister. He wrote Pursuit of Holiness. Um, But but this is an illustration I've been thinking about for the better part of a decade, um, because in a way, it really bothers me. Uh, And so maybe I ask you this question, how do you feel after hearing that? What's the emotion that you're, you're kind of feeling? Even, even maybe if you grew up in the party crowd, there's probably this sense in you going, that's unfair, right? At least that's my instinct. I was kind of in the middle. It depended on what year you caught me, right? But, but there is this sense of me of being like, Professor, teacher, you, you owe discipline and diligent the A. The reason Bridges uses this illustration is because, in a way, it's a modern-day version of the parable that we're going to read today. Jesus is teaching on the values of the kingdom, and really, Jesus is teaching on grace itself. Slow down and think about what we mean when we say grace. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve, and that's exactly what the party crowd got. 
Now, maybe that's a silly example, but here's another one that uh, Bridges mentions in this book. He runs across uh, a a younger man whose mother uh, had served in the missions field for 40 years. Uh, She had suffered a long and painful uh, illness, and she had passed away. And he looked at Bridges, and he says, 40 years of service to God, and this is the thanks that she gets. That one kind of sits right here a little bit, right? We feel it in our guts. You see, no matter how many times we think about grace and, 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 and be like, yes, I love it, it's amazing grace, there's still some portion of our human hearts that actually operate on merit, or at least imagined merit, more than grace. We often think God owes us. He owes us. Now, what exactly we think he owes us depends on the person, but as Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom today, he's, he's talking about, hey, um, the kingdom economy doesn't work based on merit. It works based on grace. People don't work their way up in the kingdom based on what they do, uh, their woo-ness or their keeping all the rules or whatever that may be. As Jack Miller would say, the way up in the kingdom is actually down. It's the path of humility. So let me give you some context as to, way, uh, as to where we're going here this morning. This is the fourth major teaching uh, or set of teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And really this section is Jesus talking about, hey, this is how we're going to operate together as a church family, as a group of followers of me, of Jesus Christ. And we talked about forgiveness a couple of weeks ago. And here they're kind of talking about, hey, how do we stack up next to each other? You know, what's the reward system going to be in the church? Like, who's going to get their pictures on the wall and who's going to get their name in the bulletin, right? It comes right after Jesus interacts with the rich young man or the rich young ruler who comes up to him and he says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, it's easy. You just keep the law. Obey your mother and father, right? Don't steal. And the rich ruler is like, yes, check, check, and check. I've done it all. And Jesus goes, oh, there's one more. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And it says that that rich young man ducked his head, and he walked away absolutely dejected. And he didn't follow Jesus. Why? Because even though sometimes we can say, hey, I followed this, and I didn't steal, and I follow your uh, ethics on this, God— Jesus knows the default of the human heart is to constantly ignore and reject the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. This rich young man, his God was not Jesus. It was his stuff. And he wanted to follow that more than he wanted to follow Jesus. And that's the default of the heart. And so it's on the heels of this that Peter, dear Peter, I love Peter. Peter makes this comment. Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then do we have? We left our homes. We're now out here in the woods with you. We're sleeping on the dirt. Uh, We've made it, right? What do we now get? Do we get our picture on the wall of the church, in the bulletin, on the website? What do we get, Jesus? You know, Peter gets it partially right. I mean, he was listening, and they have, I believe, truly uh, followed after Jesus and left everything, right? 
But Jesus is still tweaking their kingdom economy, saying, but hey, don't miss that the kingdom isn't based on merit at all or what you do to earn your standing. And so here's Jesus' reply. He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. And from this, he launches into our text here today. So Matthew 20, the very next verse, verses 1 to 16. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's one complete story, but tune your ears for this. Let me just give you, you know, kind of spoiler alert here. Um, the, the landowner or the master here is God. The full day worker, uh, that tends to be our hearts that are geared towards merit and earning God's favor. And where Jesus is actually tweaking us through this parable is saying, we actually come in as the 11th hour worker. All right, so just, you might not get it yet, but just keep that in the back of your minds as we read. 20, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says this. Here's his story that he tells. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third day, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one's hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came... They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the heat of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to the last worker as I give to you, and I am not allowed to do what I choose, or am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let me pray as we jump into the text here this morning. Well, Jesus, I pray first and foremost that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will enamor us with grace. Father, would you draw our hearts away from thinking there is anything we can earn with regards to your favor? And God, for those of us whose hearts were disturbed by this parable, who feel it unfair or unjust, I'll admit, uh, I wrestle with that every time I read this. I pray that you would remind us of our desperate need for you and your mercy. And so, Jesus, would you work in and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit? And we trust you for this. Thanks for this time in your name. Amen. All right, so let me give you some explanation just to kind of continue to bring it into the context of today because there's some of this that may not make sense that's important to pay attention to. First of all, as I said, the the landowner or the master here is uh, equivalent to God in this parable. And then the second thing we need to talk about is the the length of a workday. All right, the length of a workday. You'll see uh, that, that this person goes out into the marketplace and he hires people at different points of the day to work different lengths of time. So the typical workday in this culture, it's an agricultural society, right? And they're talking about working in 
a vineyard. And so uh, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is a typical work day. And so when he says he goes out at the third hour and gets another group of laborers to work in the field, he's talking about, I'm going out at 9 a.m. and and so on and so forth. And there's different groups of people, right? Some work a whole day, uh, some work three quarters, a half, a quarter. And then one group, he goes out at 5 o'clock, right before everything shuts down, uh, and he grabs some more laborers to work in the field. Now here's the other thing we need to talk about is how folks get paid for their week in this, or for their work in this. And this term denarius is the term that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We talked about forgiveness. And a denarius is equivalent to a day's wage. So this was fair pay, right, uh, in this time. And, and, and there's one thing that we need to pay attention to, the fact that they got paid at the end of the day. Quite different than our culture where we get paid on the first of the month, or the 15th of the month, or the end of the month, right? Deuteronomy 24 says this, and he's talking to those who might be landowners, who might be going out and grabbing laborers. He says, you shall give the laborers his wages on the same day before the sun sets for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the lord and you be guilty of sin so things didn't operate then like it does today where we have money in our bank account we go out and we go grocery shopping once a week or whatever our rhythm may be essentially here what's happening is saying these these folks uh, these laborers are poor and so they need to be, be paid on their way home because they will stop at the market, they will buy food, and they will go home and they'll eat. For these folks to not get paid at the end of the day means they don't get dinner. So here's the reality. What, um, uh, the, the market tends to be equivalent to what today would be a job fair. And so these folks who show up at the end of the day, they were desperate, standing there at 5 o'clock saying, we're going hungry tonight. And then this landowner graciously gives them a job. Now, they're still thinking, we're only going to get a twelfth of a day's pay, which means we're probably going to get the corner of a loaf of bread. Yet they were grateful for what they received. All right, so let's talk about the two really main characters in the story. The first is the generously gracious landowner. This landowner is generously gracious. The first thing we see in verse 2 is a statement about the character of this landowner, that, that this landowner is actually righteous or right. That, that this landowner has the right to actually say, this is what is good, this is what is right. You'll see in verse 4, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too to the second group of workers, and he says, whatever is right, I will give to you. So there's a statement there where he's saying, I have the right to set the wage for the day. Now, can I just talk about our current context for a minute and just ask us to maybe renew uh, our lenses for our current day when we start talking about landowners and laborers. Uh, I kept thinking about Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, as I was reading this throughout the week, where it talks about uh, sharecropping and and how the landowners were evil and they would basically uh, make the laborers go into debt further and further, a form of modern slavery. And I would just say uh, that is an abhorrent and hideous practice, and that is totally different than what we're talking about here. In fact, this landowner is actually giving uh, the wage of the day and more so, as we'll see as we keep reading. And so I just feel like we need to name that, especially in our day and age, because we can begin to import meaning that isn't there. But as we think about this landowner being right, did you catch verse 13? Long story short, what happens here is they line up all of the workers, right? The ones who started the day and worked the whole day, and then the ones who only work an hour, And they start on this end, right? The ones who only work the hour. 
And you can imagine, they're just standing there with their hand up, just kind of wincing and wondering what they're going to be able to find in the market uh, to feed their family. And can you imagine the emotion that swept over them when they put a whole day's wage in their hand? They probably came close to collapsing in that moment. But what it also says is this person over here who worked the whole day, when it finally got to them, and they're thinking, well, maybe he's going to up what I get paid, and he got the same. He was furious. As we see that, he grumbles at the landowner, and he says in verse 13, he says, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And so his righteousness of the landowner is still on display, and actually the unrighteousness of that first uh, day worker is on display as well. He's saying, hey, we kind of signed a contract at the beginning of the day. Are, Are you trying to, like, extort me for more money at this point? God is still saying, or Jesus is still saying, God is the righteous one, and this person is not. All right, so let's talk about earning God's favor and merit for a moment, particularly as we're thinking about keeping the law. So some of us love to basically write our resume before God and say, God, look, I'm keeping your law. You owe me. Well, let's think about traffic laws for just a second, and I'm going to talk about that in light of, you know, some of my traffic violations, maybe a time I got put in the back of a cop car. Uh, we're talking about it in that context for a second. Um, I had a problem early in my driving career of running stop signs. Uh, I don't know why I did. Maybe I still do, but uh, twice uh, I got pulled for running a stop sign. If you want to know about the back of the cop car scenario, come talk to me afterwards. It's a, another story for another day. But can you imagine how crazy it would be if when the police officer comes to my window, I say, Officer, look, I have kept almost every single traffic law to this point. Every single one. I go the speed limit. I stop at stop signs. In fact, this is the first time I've been pulled. You owe me. You owe me. I have earned you letting me off the hook for this stop sign. Now, if you are inclined to do that, don't. It's a really bad idea, right? But here's what we need to understand about God and and with keeping his law. When we keep his law, it is not us um, making God, uh, God, God, God is not obligated to us at all when we do good things, if we keep his law. In fact, he is the righteous one. He has the right to say, here is my law, and I demand perfection. He has that right, and there is no amount of law-keeping that can ever obligate us to God. We are simply doing our duty. Now, here's the other part that you need to see in this story, is that God is also the generous one. In verse 9, he pays the person who has only worked an hour a whole day's wage. If you are a business owner, that is not good for your bottom line. That cost this landowner. He is lavishing this worker and all the other ones who didn't work the full day with his grace. I want you to think for just a second how that 11th hour worker left that day. Can you imagine if the landowner invited him back the next day, how hard he would work for him? You see, here's the thing. Grace is always far more than what we've earned. The master paid them according to their need, not according to their work. He paid them according to grace, not according to debt. They needed to work more than the landowner needed their work. 
Michael Green, a commentator, says this. He says, Standing in the kingdom of God depends on the sheer, unmerited favor of the only one who is ultimately good and who accepts those who could never be good in order that this free grace may produce in them genuinely good works. These good works are not meritorious deeds for life. They are responsive, grateful behavior springing from the life that God in His generosity has given to them. He's saying this is total grace lavished upon them and any good works that we do should be spirit-fueled response of thankfulness at the generosity of our God. Well, here's the reality, is that we don't actually like this economy. Do you like this economy? Think about the parable. Do Do you like that? Or does it feel unfair? Why might it feel unfair to us? if you're there. R.C. Sproul says says this. He says, perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. Well, friends, how does the rest of God's Word talk about our position relative to these workers in His field as we walk through the rest of Scripture? Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. You know, when it says no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God, you know what that says in the Greek, the no one? It means no one. <laughs> No one. No one. Not the most put together. Not the most successful. Not the most disciplined and diligent. Not the ones with the most charm. No one seeks after God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, the reason why I think we err on the side of, hey, God, you owe us, is because, first of all, our pride, we're just prideful. We think heaven would be so much better if we just showed up. We deserve it, right? To think we live in a hyper-individualistic, self-made culture, and to think we don't import that on God's economy is foolishness. We tend to always see ourselves as the all-day workers. Whereas the Bible constantly is screaming at us that we are last hour workers, deserving God's, or needing desperately God's grace. To go back to the studying illustration, right? Um, You know, if you're the disciplined and diligent, what that passage in Romans just told us is not only do we not deserve an A, we we don't even have a book, (laughs) we're not enrolled in the class, we don't go to that school. In fact, we don't even believe we need education. That's how far away from the kingdom we are by our own efforts. Here's the good news. Romans 5.20 The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's saying all law-keeping does is actually show us in a mirror how broken we actually are. 
If we really paid attention to the whole law, we would see how we fall short constantly. But it says the good news is, is the free offer of grace abounds far beyond that. Abounding all the more could also be translated superabounds. It superabounds. When we fall short time and time again, it superabounds. What's the difference between the heart posture of the all-day worker and the 11th hour worker here? Well, I would just venture this. We read that the all-day worker goes home grumbling. The 11th hour worker no doubt goes home grateful, knowing the gracious landowner has been generous beyond all measure and is likely able to be content when he goes home. If we struggle with discontentment with God, Chances are we believe God owes us somewhere and we are seeing constantly in our lives that we are not matching up to that belief. God owes us nothing. But the good news is is He actually offers us everything through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you this visual as we quickly just kind of look at this final worker um, or this all-day worker here in just a moment. And this is uh, a chart that Serge puts together to kind of understand maturity in Christ. So you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You rely on grace, right, uh, to save you by placing your faith in Jesus. And that's the moment of conversion, if you will. And the reality is, is, is at that point, we just haven't arrived. It's not like grace goes out the window. We must continually live by grace. Maturing in Jesus Christ doesn't mean, hey, we're, we're kind of trending well with regards to keeping his law. We're looking more and more put together. We're looking more and more like whatever Christians look like on Instagram or whatever you think they should look like. In fact, I think this is more of a picture of maturity in Jesus. Not to say that his sanctification isn't real, that he makes us look more and more like Jesus, that he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enables us to keep his law more and more. But, but really, the true understanding of maturity in Christ is understanding two things as we grow in grace. One, a growing awareness of God's holiness. That every day we grow in awe of how good and great and righteous and perfect God is. And simultaneous to that, we are in a growing awareness of our flesh, our sinfulness, and how we fall short. Now, if we just lived with that chasm, do you know what would happen? We would be crushed. Crushed by guilt crushed by shame. And that's where the cross comes in. That's where we also, simultaneous to our understanding of those two things, grow in our understanding of His mercy. That we stand and go, God, I need Your mercy. And we see Him lavishing us with His grace, with His riches, as we continue to grow in our understanding of His grace. Now here's what our heart defaults to. We place our faith in Jesus Right, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, but then we kind of stagnate. We think, okay, grace is kind of out the window, and now I've got to work my butt off or he's going to kick me out of the kingdom. And friends, I couldn't be further from the truth. But in order to maintain that economy, uh, we can't live with that chasm. So we have to shrink the cross. We shrink the cross by either minimizing our sin, saying, oh, it's not that bad. We blame shift. It wasn't that bad, but what that person did, whoo right? Or we do what we see this other worker doing at the top. We perform. We perform. We think, hey, we can work up to your standards, God, and we become self-righteous, self-focused. And so let's see what happens in our hearts when we become self-righteous, when we become self-focused. 
The first thing we see is we grumble at God. We grumble at God. Man, when this worker saw God paying him that and he not getting a pay raise, it says he grumbled at his master of the house. We become little grumble bees. We get mad at God. Do you ever grumble at God? There could be some merit thinking. You owe me. Why am I not getting what you owe me? Here's the other thing. We make ourselves right. We become self-righteous. And the primary way we do that is by comparing ourselves to other people. We go, oh, uh, but I'm better than them. I'm better than her. I'm better than him. Our family's better than their family. My philosophy on whatever this crazy year has emerged is better than that person's philosophy on those things. And we feel a little bit better about ourselves for just a moment. And the reason I say we compare, do you see in verse 12? He says, you have made them equal to us. How dare you? It says in verse 10, they just thought they would receive more. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. But we've fallen into works righteousness. We've fallen into comparison. Brunswick stew, do you all know what Brunswick stew is? Probably not. It's kind of a southern stew. It takes a lot of ingredients. I remember making, my mom gave me the big list, one of my favorite stews. I'm just intricately putting in every single carefully measured uh, ingredient, right? And at the very end, what would you say? I'm like, oh, this is delicious. It's missing one thing. I go out to the garage. I grab the motor oil. I come in and I pour a quarter cup. And I pour it in. What would you say to me? if you were coming over to my house for dinner that night. You ruined it. Right? Just that one ingredient. Friends, that's what we do to the Christian faith when we add merit. Salvation is based on grace through faith in Christ alone. And that's it. Just a little bit of merit ruins it. At the very least, even if we profess faith, it'll destroy us. We will become these grumbling, self-righteous messes. I think we're seeing that working its way out in the church at large right now. So let me ask you a couple diagnostic questions and then I'll close us and we'll move to communion. But here's the first. Do you have a hard time relating to people who don't yet know Jesus because you think you have nothing in common with them? Is your heart cold towards extending mercy to others? Or do you have a hard time accepting mercy? Do you feel compelled to evaluate others' actions and measuring them? Are you often frustrated or angry that your efforts and accomplishments aren't being recognized? Is your heart's attitude characterized by harshness, particularly for those who are doing the best they can yet seem to fall short? That's a tough question for me, by the way. If it is, somehow we've introduced a little bit of motor oil to the soup. We've begun to believe that God owes us. We've begun to believe that maybe we're saved by grace or maybe we're saved by merit or that we're made perfect or right by our own efforts. What Jesus is articulating through this parable is clearly this. In the end, God owes us nothing, but he offers us everything by the grace and mercy of Jesus. Let me close this portion in prayer and we'll move to communion. Lord, this is hard. Lord, where we may be entering this time, 
Maybe we don't know you yet. Maybe we believe we can work ourselves to you. May this parable break us of that false theology. And Lord, may we open-handedly come to you and say, I need your grace. I'm desperate for it, and I can do nothing but ask. Lord, may that heart humble themselves before you today. And Father, for those of us who maybe we've placed our faith in you and we've relied on grace, but we so quickly move back to the merit economy, God, may we repent all the way down for our unbelief and rely wholly on you for your grace that you lavish upon us. Be with us as we move to communion, we pray. In your name, amen.